Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Wall Street police shootings that occurred in 1988. The Wall Street police shootings were the 1988 murders of two Victoria police officers, Constable Stephen Tynan, 22, and Damien Eyre, 20. Tynan and Eyre were responding to a report of an abandoned car when they were gunned down about 4.50am in Wall Street, South Yarra, on the 12th of October of 1988. Four men, Victor Pierce, Trevor Penningill, Anthony Lee Farrell, and Peter David McAvoy, were charged with murder and later acquitted by a jury in the Supreme Court of Victoria. Two other suspects, Jed Horton and Gary Abdallah, were shot and killed by Victoria Police before being brought to trial, which I'll get into later in this podcast. There have been 27 police officers killed on duty since the Victorian force was established in 1853. The police shooting, this particular one, was the first multiple murder of police since the Kelly gang shot three constables dead at Stringy Bark Creek in 1878. Since that attack on the three police officers by the Ned Kelly gang, criminal attacks on police officers were considered as rare events in Victoria. During the period of the 1980s, prior to the Wall Street killings, there had been a number of random acts of violence committed against members of the Victoria Police Force, as well as other police officers that held very high rank, which I will go into. So two of the most notable attacks on police that I know of, one occurred in Victoria, the other was in the ACT, Australian Capital Territory. The first was the Russell Street bombing on the 27th of March 1986 and the death of Constable Angela Taylor from her injuries 24 days later. This had heightened fears within the Victoria Police that any officer on duty elsewhere could be considered as a target of a criminal attack. Those fears were later justified six months to the day of the Russell Street bombing. The other most significant attack on the police force was the assassination of Colin Winchester who was an assistant commissioner in the Australian Federal Police. Winchester commanded ACT Police, the community police policing component of the AFP responsible for the Australian Capital Territory. In 1989, he was assassinated by an unknown perpetrator. David Eastman, who was thought to be the killer, had his conviction later overturned. I will touch on this case in a later podcast episode. This period of the 1980s saw a high number of armed robberies being committed throughout Melbourne to a point where they had become a problem for police forces across Australia. Rather than committing robberies on impulse, professional armed robbers organised in gangs began planning their robberies in advance by conducting surveillance on targets, known to carry large amounts of cash, selecting gang members, assigning roles, organising weaponry and equipment needed, arranging the getaway vehicles and organising safe houses. We're talking seriously organised criminals. The armed robbery gangs not only carried out the robberies with precision, they also carried out the robberies with threats of violence. Now, what really kicked off this whole thing was the June 1987 killing of Frank Velastro, who was shot during a raid on his home by Victoria Police. Senior Constable Michael Leslie was the one who shot him. Apparently, he was a bank robber with the Flemington crew part-time. He had also been raising the violence in the armed bank robberies that he was involved in to a terrifyingly new level. Part-time member Frank Velastro was taking the violence to a frightening new level. Police launched a raid on his home, knowing he'd be armed and dangerous. As coppers, you had to be 
in some, some cases as tough as what they were. Belestro was shot dead by senior constable Michael Leslie. After this, Victor Pierce and other members of his gang feared that police were gunning for them one by one with the sole purpose of killing them, which I actually highly suspect is exactly what they were doing, as they couldn't get enough evidence to convict and put them away, so they took things into their own hands. The reason I say this is because during no other time have the Victoria Police Armed Hold-Up Squad conducted so many raids on criminals and had so many fatal shootings with so many criminals all at once, with the end result being they all end up dead. Starting from the 25th of January 1987 up until the last kill on the 9th of April 1989, during this period, the raids and the attempted capture of Graham Jensen in a car park that were conducted led to the deaths of five criminals. I don't know of any other period in Australian criminal history where the police have conducted all of these raids on known criminals and all of them have ended up dead and they haven't arrested a single one of them. It seems a little bit fishy to me that you have all of this going on and every single criminal ends up dead and not one of them has been arrested and the police want to say, oh well, it was just that they had pointed a gun at us and we shot them but even even then I mean it's crazy to imagine that all of these criminals over a period of three years all end up dying under what I can only describe as very interesting circumstances. It was at that time that Victor Pierce and his gang came up with and formed a pact that if another criminal or gang member of their gang, if they were killed by police, they would take out two police, a two for one deal. Police became aware of this but no action was taken. When Velastro was shot dead, Pierce and his gang believed police were out to kill them all one by one, and rumours started of a payback deal. Information had, uh, had surfaced during that time that as a result of Velastro killing, a pact had been formed between a number of the crooks involving Pierce, involving uh, Jensen and the like, that the next criminal to be shot by the police, they would take out two police officers. There was certainly um, this belief amongst the criminals that, uh, that they were being taken out or that the motive of the police was to, uh, was to kill them and they certainly came up with this pact that, uh, that was going two for one. Pierce's gang was dubbed the Flemington Crew by the police, had robbed at least four Melbourne banks. Peter McAvoy was um, the epitome of a coward. He, he would attack females. He'd be the woke uh, that would attack a young girl rather than uh, ever front anyone else. Jed Horton is a dangerous, um, cold, calculating criminal. Jed Horton uh, scared a lot of people. Graham Jensen, he was uh, a likeable person uh, within his uh, with his own group, but an active, dangerous, violent criminal. Victor Pearce was a dangerous, cold, calculating uh, career criminal, uh, murderer, um, and probably um, best described as uh, the planner. Um, he uh, he organised and uh, and managed. Uh, what went on. At Oak Park, the robbery went wrong from the start when security screens were activated, separating the robbers from the money. Several shotgun blasts failed to open a security door and the robbers fled, leaving three shotgun shells. Armed robbery squad detectives failed to get any leads. They filed details of the robberies in a box marked the Flemington crew. Four months after the Oak Park incident, a security guard, Dominic Hefty, at a Coles supermarket in Brunswick was killed in an exchange of fire. The wounded bandit escaped with $33,000 in cash. The bandit's raid was well-timed. Despite the fear police were gunning for them, it was business as usual for Melbourne's criminal underworld. When a security guard, Dominic Hefty, was killed in a bungled robbery, Graeme Jensen and Victor Pearce became suspects and were placed under surveillance. 
A source told the armed robbery squad that Victor Pierce was involved, and another tip-off hinted at Graham Jensen. DNA tests later proved that career criminal Santo Mercury was the wounded bandit. Another known criminal drove the getaway car. Mercury was convicted and later died in jail. On the 11th of October 1988, Pierce's best friend Graham Jensen was fatally shot by police in Narrow Warren. Jensen had been under observation by the Victoria Police Armed Robbery Squad, who had planned to arrest him in connection with an armed robbery and murder. The Flemington gang he belonged to robbed at least four banks. Acting on the tip-off, detectives discovered that another armed robbery squad crew was investigating Pierce, Jensen, and Horton. According to an informant, they were planning a big robbery. When the informant said the job had been called off, detectives decided to arrest Pierce and Jensen to ask Pierce about the Coles job and other raids, and to determine if Jensen might have been the wounded bandit. The first arrest, by any assessment, went terribly wrong. Detectives tried to grab Jensen at a narrow Warren hardware store, but by the time they moved, he was in his car. Three cars containing eight detectives attempted to block Jensen in as he left the store but one of the cars was delayed by passing traffic, allowing Jensen to drive through. Here's where things get interesting though. Police later gave sworn evidence that they saw Jensen brandish a firearm. Police yelled at Jensen to stop. One detective yelled, and I quote, he's got a gun. End quote. Jensen was then shot dead and his car crashed into a roadside power pole. Police said that Jensen had a gun, which according to an article by Tom Noble, who later wrote a book about the case, turned out to be a non-functioning sawn-off 22 bolt action rifle, which was made to look like a pistol, which for someone like Jensen, who is experienced and proficient with using firearms, is an odd weapon for him to be found allegedly in possession of. There are, however, many like me who believe that Graham Jensen never had a gun and that the firearm that he was found with was planted by police. Interestingly enough, on the 30th, 13th of March 2011, the Sunday night aired an interview with former disgraced police officer Malcolm Rosens, who was later jailed for drug-related offences that claimed that Graham Jensen was killed in cold blood and had a sawn-off rifle planted in his car after his death. By 1988, it was well known that Victor and the Flemington crew were behind the bank jobs. But proving it was difficult. The police were hell-bent on getting all his crew. Well, the armed robbery squad at that stage had told us that they were going to start arresting uh, the crew that we had been working on. Malcolm Rosens has agreed to be interviewed for the first time on television about the deadly event he witnessed the day before Wall Street. He says he can no longer live with the lies. A 27-year veteran, Rosens had a checkered career in the Victorian police. He was a decorated officer, later a disgraced one, serving time for drug offences. But in 1988, he led an undercover surveillance team watching Victor Pierce's loyal lieutenant, his best mate, Graham Jensen. It was a Tuesday. Jensen was mowing the lawn. When the mower broke down, he drove to the local shops to buy a spark plug. Rosens' surveillance team followed him. I had two in one car in the Shell service station. So on the other side of the road there? Yes, watching the car park here. Had one positioned up the Princess Highway and one in Webb Street. <clears throat> and I took this uh, exit here. At any stage, did you see Jensen with a weapon? No, I did not. What happened next would set off a chain of events that in 13 hours' time would result in the Walsh Street murders. What happened? A member of my uh, surveillance team came onto the police radio and told me that uh, two or three armed robbery squad cars had just passed him at a great speed, heading towards our location where Jensen was. 
I hadn't had any communication with the armed robbery squad, so this was out of the blue that this was happening. As Jensen sees the police coming in after him, he takes off in this direction and the police start firing. He only makes it about 50 metres before he hits this pole. I heard a volley of shots fired, so seven or eight shots, and I've uh, waited in the car, not knowing what's going on. Nothing's come across the police radio. I walked uh, with one of the other operatives over to um, the car. I went past the driver's door, stopped. I had a look inside. I could see that uh, Jensen was slumped in the seat and was deceased. Did you see a weapon when you looked inside the car? When I looked in the car at that time, there was no weapon. You're absolutely sure of that? 100%. What do you believe happened here 23 years ago? I think the armed robbery shot and murdered a, a man here. The police case has always been that Jensen pointed a weapon at them first before they fired with deadly effect. Rosens doesn't believe a word of it. And why? Because of what he says he witnessed next. They started to walk back towards Jensen's car. One of them, I noticed, had a, a towel. They came to the car. One of the detectives put the towel on top of the car and then it unfurled into the car and I saw an object fall into the driver's side of the car. Did you look into the car after you'd seen that object put into the car? I later walked around and saw that there was a, a sawn-off uh, rifle on the floor of the car now. Was that sawn-off rifle there before? No, definitely not. I believe that um, we as the, the surveillance unit had been used to um, find Jensen with the view of um, having him murdered. They were executing somebody, weren't they? They did, yes. And there's no doubt in my mind um, that uh, this was premeditated, planned by the armed robbery squad, and that uh, the surveillance unit were not made aware of it, and we were the pawns being used to um, uh, help find this person. Did you or any of your colleagues record the fact that a weapon was planted? No, we didn't. And was that a deliberate decision? Yes. What do you think would have happened if that day you'd been bold enough, or if one of your colleagues had been bold enough to say, well, I want to put in my statement what I saw. I really don't want to think about, think about that because, um, really, when you think about it, if the, if the armed robbery squad are prepared to shoot an unarmed man who they want to arrest, they would have no hesitation in taking the life of another policeman who wants to expose what's taken place. You think they're capable of murdering a police officer to cover up their crime? If I believe if I would have stated something on, on the day, um, I would have been in peril from then on. It's, it was safer to toe the, toe the line and do as everybody else wanted or expected you to do. By making the decision to not reveal this, you were concealing a crime? Yes, we were. We were committing perjury. Why does this matter? 
why couldn't people just forget about this case, bury it, move on? I think it's, um, it's very tragic what took place. Um, no matter what Jensen was doing, he was still a human being, he didn't need to be uh, gunned down. And then the next day, Victor Pearce and his Flemington crew mates went out and murdered two policemen in reprisal in what remains one of the greatest unsolved crimes in this state. It's shocking, terrible. However, the thing about this is, these allegations about police planting evidence to justify the shooting of Jensen were never proven or investigated. Now, I'm going to give you some backstory about the policemen who were killed in Wall Street, that being uh, Stephen Tynan and Damien Eyre. So, Constable Stephen Tynan, 22, joined the police force in September of 1985. He graduated from the police academy the following January and spent his first year at Cheltenham. He had been stationed since January at Pran Ram, where he earned a reputation for hard work. Sergeant George Cooney, the officer in charge at Pran Ram, said that Constable Tynan had been particularly affected by his job when he was involved in the shooting of two men who allegedly tried to rob a South Yarra TAB. Constable Tynan returned to night shift only on Sunday. He was keen to show his younger colleague how crime was fought. When probationary constable Damien Eyre 20 graduated from the police academy on, on the 29th of April, it was the realisation of lifelong ambition. He came from a police family. His father, Frank, had been an officer between 1963 and 1977 and as a member of the force reserve at Shepparton. His brother is a detective based at Melton. His ambition to join the force was partially inspired by the respect his family had earned as police officers. He failed his first admission test to join the force, but doggedly pursued his goal. His application to join the force said, and I quote, as most of my family are in the Victoria Police Force, I believe I have a good knowledge of the force. This has been a lifelong ambition and I respect the Victoria Police Force very much, end quote. On the fabled day, 12th of October, 13 hours after Jensen's death at 4.39am, constables Tynan and Eyre were operating a division van from Pram Ram Police Station when they were called to an abandoned Holden Commodore left in Wall Street, South Yarra. At the time, the call about the abandoned Commodore would have been answered by police units from St Kilda Road Police Station. However, at the time of the murders, St Kilda Road Police Station had a shortage of officers on duty and were unable to send a divisional van. Nominally, the call would have been diverted to units from South Melbourne Police Station, but on the night, the only available South Melbourne Police Unit, another divisional van operated by a female constable and a male constable, had been called to a suspected suicide in St Kilda. As Constables Tynan and Eyre were the first available officers in the area, the call was passed on to their divisional van. While the officers were examining the vehicle, they were ambushed by armed defenders, who remained disputed as to exactly who it was that did the killing to this very day. Constable Tynan was cut down with a shotgun while sitting in the car, and Constable Eyre was seriously wounded. It is thought that Constable Eyre, despite having suffered serious wounds, struggled with the attacker. There were several shotgun blasts. One went up in the air while another went into the building, until another person approached him from behind, managed to remove service revolver from his holster and shoot him in the head with it at point-blank range. He was then shot again in the head when he fell on the ground. That gun disappeared and has never been recovered. It is believed that one of Victor Pierce's gang took it and either hid it or disposed of it in some way. The purpose of today's event is to try and recreate what happened when Constable Damien Eyre and Constable Steve Tynan were fatally shot. Tynan is in about that position just on the rise from getting out of the vehicle when he is then shot at about that angle to the top of the head. And Constable Tynan then falls back into the vehicle 
At the same time, Constable Air comes up to the rise and is shot across his back with this sawn-off shotgun. He then turns after being shot. The firearm goes off again in the air. This offender turns away. Another shot, which goes into a nearby building. At that same time, a second offender comes in and has then taken Constable Air's service revolver and shot him at close range, approximately a distance of, of four, inch, four inches or thereabouts, to the right side of the head. And then he was shot again when he was on the ground. Upon hearing reports from residents on Wall Street about shots fired at 4.53am, the police communications officer attempted to contact Tynan and Eyre. Unable to contact Eyre and Tynan, the police communications officer contacted the South Melbourne District Supervising Inspector. Police believe members of a Melbourne armed robbery gang had organised the murders. In the period up to April 1989, there had been an unusually high number of fatal shootings of suspects by police, which I'm about to get into. The killings of the two police officers were viewed by many as a form of payback by members of the Melbourne underworld. A post mortem showed that both men were shot with a shotgun. Constable Tynan was shot in the head and was found lying next to the Commodore. Constable Eyre was shot in the back and his service revolver was used to shoot him in the head and chest. Both were shot from side on and at close range. At the time, police said it was possible that Tynan and Eyre had come across thieves trying to steal a car for use in a robbery. The Commodore belonging to a Wall Street man was not far from his house. Several cars near the murder scene had quarter windows broken overnight in apparent theft attempts. The Police Deputy Commissioner for Crime, Mr. John Frame, said the original call for police to attend the scene came from a Wall Street resident. Police spoke to the caller and eliminated the possibility that the killers called police as part of an ambush. Witnesses told police that two men were seen jumping over a fence outside a nearby block of flats and that a small grey sedan sped away from nearby Arley Street towards Punt Road just after the shots were heard. Police did not discount other information that men were seen running towards Dominion Road. Mr. Frame said the only description police had was that one man wore a black jumper with a white stripe. Witnesses told police they heard up to six shots from the street about 4.50 a.m. Some said they heard four shots, followed by silence, then another two shots, apparently farther away. Mr. Frame rejected suggestions that police were putting officers onto the street when they were too young. Constable Tynan had been in the force for three years, and Constable Eyre for less than one. Quote, It certainly wasn't that we had two very inexperienced members, because three years' experience in mainly inner suburban police stations is relatively experienced. End quote. He said that officers were not wearing flak jackets and given their injuries would not have been saved by them. Quote, it was simply a suspect vehicle, a fairly routine call. Mr. Frame said he would hate to see the day of Victorian police had to attend all calls with their guns drawn. Police are advised to wear firearms when they go out on the streets on duty, but Mr. Frame said they had to make their own decisions. The police investigation was known as the Tie-Eye Task Force, a combination of the two surnames of the officers killed. Detective Inspector John Noonan was the officer in charge and it was the biggest investigation Victorian police had ever undertaken at that time and also the longest running spanning 895 days. At the height of the investigation police had hundreds of officers working with the task force to investigate the murders. Police investigations revealed a number of interesting things including the shotgun used to perform the murders was the same weapon used earlier in a bungled attempt to blast open a bank door during a robbery at the state bank in Oak Park seven months earlier. The robbers on security CCTV at the Oak Park robbery had left shotgun shells at the scene which I mentioned at the beginning of 
of this podcast. Seven months into the investigation, the shotgun itself was actually found half buried in an inner city golf course plant bed by a gardener. The shotgun and shells became the single forensic link police had, linking the Oak Park robbery to the same shotgun used in the Wall Street murders. The shotgun and empty shotgun shell casings are actually on display at the Victoria Police Museum in Melbourne. Now, my understanding was that they were actually able to link the shotgun to that actual robbery because one of the ballistics experts spent time frame by frame looking at security camera photos that had been taken during the robbery and there were various moments where the shotgun could be seen in the hands of the robbers. Amazing and a brilliant piece of detective work. Police investigating the Wall Street killings needed to link the suspects with physical evidence, in particular the shotgun used in the murders. When a shotgun was discovered in Melbourne's Royal Park Golf Course, they had their vital missing link. That was um, proved to be the murder weapon used at Wall Street by our ballistic experts. Police suspected the gun had also been used in armed robberies. We had a member who um, painstakingly um, went through those photos and was able to, um, to prove that the KTG shotgun that was our murder weapon at Wall Street was also the same weapon that was used in, uh, in a number of armed robberies. The weeks that followed, police conducted numerous and sometimes brutal raids. More deaths at the hands of Victoria Police's armed hold-up squad soon followed, and more blood hit the streets. Victor Pierce was arrested, however, he was put into jail on other matters related to armed robberies he was suspected as having some involvement in, which wasn't what those who were working on the Wall Street Task Force actually wanted, because to them, he couldn't be gotten at to insist with their inquiries. His Richmond home was literally demolished in the search for clues, and his backyard was also dug up for clues, which to me was more symbolic of the police getting their own back on those who they deemed had killed their brothers in arms, rather than them just searching for evidence. Jed Horton was shot and killed during a police raid on the Big Four Ascot Holiday Park in Bendigo in November of 1988. The police, as I understand it, had come to the area sometime before the raid, and it is alleged that they spent some time casing the joint, finding the best way to raid his home. However, other people thought that they were there to kill Jed, not arrest him. Tom Noble went on to state that to his knowledge, when the police tried to enter his home, it was thought it was through a different door that they than they thought, and allegedly Jed pointed a firearm at them. And I also understand that he was known to have a lot of firearms. A lot of the pictures that were taken after he was shot and kill show that he had all these firearms everywhere. They had like a whole table that was just full of like almost a dozen firearms. Tom Noble explains. My understanding was that when they got to the door to go through it, it was a different door than they thought and they took a bit longer to get through. And when they got through, um, Jed Horton already had a gun. There was a loss of life. It was good that it was Horton and not not the police because we'd already lost enough police at that stage. This latest killing has the underworld fearing a macabre game of tit-for-tat is developing. We'd been in Bendigo for a long time, um, and, uh, and the reason we were there for a long time was to gain evidence. So our next move was to talk to him, and that's, uh, that's why we, uh, we made that move. So for people to rumour that um, the police went there with the intention of killing him is certainly unfounded, and, and, and it's certainly not substantiated in any way. Well, if you point guns at police, and if that's what he did, uh, and he was certainly well armed, then the Special Operations Group are trained not to ask questions at that point. Gary Abdallah, a friend of Horton, was shot dead by police after the murder task force had cleared him. According to the police, he was a car thief who they believe had been hired by Pierce to steal a car for the ambush on Wall Street. Apparently, he had pointed an imitation pistol at them and had had a bullet lodged in his brain for his troubles. He was in a coma and died shortly after. Horton rang you. 
for you to either give him your car or for you to get him a car. Another name added to the Wall Street investigation was Gary Abdallah, a young car thief. Abdallah had been lying low for months, fearing he was a target for police. Our information in regard to Gary Abdullah suggested that um, he was responsible for acquiring the um, stolen cars on, uh, on some jobs and it was believed that um, he had provided advice or assistance um, to, um, to the main players at Wall Street. Do you recall speaking to Jed that night? After this interview, Abdallah again disappeared. Gary Abdullah was hit by a volley of shots in his Drummond Street Carlton flat after allegedly producing an imitation pistol while being questioned by police. Since then, he'd been fighting for his life in St Vincent's Hospital, but died this morning with a bullet still lodged in his brain. Abdullah was a close associate of Victor Pearce, charged with the murders of Constables Tynan and Eyre. He was also a friend of armed robber Graham Jensen, gunned down by detectives at Narry Warren the day before the Wall Street killings, and of another suspect, Jed Horton, shot dead during a raid on a Bendigo caravan park. At the time um, of the Abdullah shooting, um, there was a suggestion that people were, were starting to think that uh, the police just running around, you know, shooting these people, that we were conducting um, an honest and fair investigation, but a very hard investigation, and we were doing it uh, in, in, the, in the best way we could. Abdallah's death spooked another of the gang police had under surveillance for Wall Street, Peter McAvoy. I'm concerned for my welfare. Um, I'm concerned for my life. And indeed, anybody else that is with me uh, when these cowboys come charging through with their guns drawn. I find this whole thing strange and bizarre as to why he was targeted. I mean, if he had nothing to do with Wall Street, why was he gunned down? The imitation pistol theory seems really fishy to me. It, it sort of sounds like the whole Graham Jensen gun being planted scenario again. But again, again, nothing was ever proven. And if that's what he did, then police are trained to, if somebody points a gun at them, they either try to take them down non-lethally, or if it turns into a raging gun battle, then they take them down lethally. But I mean, it just seems a little bit interesting because Gary Abdel from what I understand really had nothing to do with Wall Street and he was completely cleared and then apparently the police tried to arrest him on some unrelated charges and he pointed apparently an imitation firearm at them and they shot him. It's something to me about that just seems really off to me. I, I can't quite put my finger on it but that doesn't quite sound like the whole story's been told. Jason Ryan was scooped up in the police raid and decided to turn on his family and become a snitch. His reason for doing so was because he generally felt remorse about what had happened at Wall Street as he would later tell a Herald Sun report Porter, quote, because those two policemen, Tynan and Eyre, had nothing to do with Jensen's death. End quote. Ryan also stated to this Herald Sun reporter quite an interesting story. He said he started out as a drug and gun mule for Allen, who was running a multi-million dollar heroin trafficking business out of several houses in the blue-collar suburb of Richmond. With the backing of his notorious family, the Pettingills, he graduated to a cocky standover kid and eventual robber. He admitted that he did a lot of bad things. Quote, I was always confident because I had my family there. Dennis virtually said I was his young apprentice. As I did more crime, I got greedier. End quote. By 
By age 13, he said he was drinking heavily and injecting speed. It was around this time he witnessed Uncle Dennis murder friend Wayne Stanhope after a day of drinking and injecting speed. Alan was a mad dog at the best of times, but went off tap during binge sessions. As it was stated, Stanhope wanted to kill Dennis. Ryan stated, they all wanted his gold, end quote. Alan shot Stanhope in his lounge room in front of a group of friends as Stanhope went to change the record player. Dennis shot Stanhope six times, Ryan stated. I came out of the bedroom. I had a gun with me at the time. It was a .25 auto. Dennis looked at me and grabbed the gun. The music was still pumping and Stanhope's last words were, help me Dennis. The other people sitting on the couch were horrified. Dennis gave Stanhope another seven from my gun. As he was doing it, he said, that's for your mates. Dennis grabbed him and dragged him because he was bleeding on the carpet. Dennis was fond of his carpet and he dumped him on the tiles. Dennis finished his drink and grabbed Stanhope's head and smashed it into the tiles. He became like an animal, end quote. Ryan said he was afraid and refused to help his uncle move the body as ordered. I'd just watched a movie prior to this called Evil Dead and in that movie, the dead always come back, end quote. Stanhope's death went to inquest, but Dennis Allen was never charged. The next murder Ryan witnessed was that of prostitute Helga Wanig in November of 1984. Ryan suggested that she was put off because Uncle Dennis believed she was informing to police, something Allen himself was suspected of doing on occasion to stay out of jail. Wanig died of a hotshot drug overdose purportedly administered by Allen himself, who then drowned her with a bucket of water collected from the Yarra River. He put her head in the bucket, Ryan said. He was just making normal conversation and she was going blue and purple. Wanig's body was later dumped in the Yarra and inquest into her death ended with an opening finding. It was about a year later when Alan killed former Hells Angels bikey Anton Kenny. According to Ryan, unidentified bikey members contracted Dennis to kill Kenny. We had a bit of a dealing with the bikey gang, Ryan explained. Dennis apparently wanted to buy an M60 machine gun off them. That's how far Dennis was going. He was thinking of going to war with the police. Kenny's rocked down and was sitting at the table. Underneath the table was the 38 Special. Dennis had no t-shirt on to show Kenny he didn't have a gun. Kenny gave Dennis his gun thinking he was doing the right thing. Anyway, Dennis pulled the 38 from under the table and went boom, emptied it right out. Kenny's legs were later chopped off and his body sealed in a 44 gallon drum, end quote. In 1987, Alan died of a broken heart. His ticket irreparably damaged by his chronic lifestyle. The following year, on the afternoon of October 12th, 1998, heavily armed police arrested Ryan and his associate Anthony Farrell while on the hunt for Victor Pierce, who became an immediate suspect for the Wall Street murders. Fearing for his safety from both sides, Ryan said he started talking to the cops about Wall Street as he was taken away on a country trip. There wasn't many barbecues, I can tell you that, he said sarcastically of the four-day trip. Ryan gave several statements. I told them bits and pieces and told them some bullshit because I didn't trust them at first. I was only 17 and confused, end quote. Ryan came to trust Detective Inspector John Newman, one of the task force bosses. He said that after testing Noonan with half-truths and lies, he eventually told his version of the truth. By the time the case went to trial, Ryan found himself bearing the weight of the prosecution case on his young shoulders. The defense barristers hammered his credibility during cross-examination, and Ryan said the pressure and responsibility in the witness box became unbearable. Quote, I was a kid, and the lawyers there were smart people. If I was lying, why wasn't I charged with perjury? And if the magistrate didn't see enough there in the 14 days of the committal hearing, why didn't he commit them to trial? I felt sick every time I went to court. I couldn't explain things at the trial like I did at the committal. The defense lawyers just heard what they wanted to hear, then they cut me off. End quote. Ryan went into state after the Wall Street Four were acquitted for fear that he would cop several bullets for turning on his family. Anthony Farrell was a different case, however, because when he was arrested by police, and according to Tom Noble, the police had hoped that by arresting him they could apply pressure to him and hopefully he'd crack and give everyone else up. However, this plan didn't work because Farrell got some very good advice from none other than disgraced lawyer Andrew Fraser, who was later charged and jailed for drug-related offences, specifically cocaine. Uh, not long after got Anthony Farrell and interviewed him, 
and decided that they would charge him with murder, put the pressure on him and see what he said, see if they could break him. Um, and it didn't work. He had some rather special and significant advice from a lawyer called Andrew Fraser and said nothing more. A secret bugging device was planted in the cells of the Melbourne Police Watch House to record a conversation between Anthony Farrell and his solicitor, Andrew Fraser. Jason couldn't have. So apparently they said the money. Well, I'm not Jason either. Yeah. It's Jason's too. Well, that's right. The victim would have, the victim would have been pinched. The victim would have been pinched by me. Oh, I'm talking to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what they've done. Yeah. They've done on you. With Farrell talking uh, with um, with Fraser, it was a discussion uh, between two criminals. Uh, unless you knew different, uh, that's exactly how it would have come over. One crook talking to another. Farrell. When Farrell was arrested, Fraser visited him in the cells where police secretly recorded their conversation. You're in custody now, you don't have to talk to any police, you understand? Yeah. It's about, you know, if you stop and think about it, it's about the worst murder that's ever been committed in this state. Right? And you're f***ing for the time being. Now to give some background on this underworld family, the Pettigills. So the Pettigills were a family that was based in Melbourne and they were headed by Martrich Kath Pettigill. Family members have many convictions for criminal offences including drug trafficking, arms dealing and armed robberies. Two of Kath Pettigill's sons, Victor Pierce and Trevor Pettigill, faced a murder trial for the 1988 Wall Street police shootings with both acquitted along with two other fellow defendants. Victor Pierce's de facto wife Wendy later claimed that her husband planned and carried out the murders with the fellow accused. The families were furthermore involved in the infamous Melbourne gangland killings when it, where it suffered a major blow with the death of one of its highest ranking members, Victor Pierce, and resulting in its power being greatly weakened. So the family members were as follows. Kath Penningill, Kathleen Penningill, born 27th of March 1935, is the Marchage of the Melbourne criminal, criminal family, the Penningill family. Penningill first worked in a bar and having herself been a prostitute she went on to run brothels. She lived with her children in the Richmond area of Melbourne and a number of her sons were sent to the Tirana Boys Home, a very infamous boys home from what I've heard. Penningill has a glass eye in place of the one she lost after being shot in 1978 by Kim Nelson and Kieran Thompson. The bullet passed through a closed door at the Collingwood Housing Commission of Victoria Flats as she and her son Dennis Allen attempted to repay a $300 debt on behalf of her daughter Vicky Brooks. Then we have Dennis Bruce Allen who was born the 7th of November 1951 and died the 3rd of April 1987. He was an Australian drug dealer who was reported to have murdered many victims. He was based in Melbourne and was the oldest son of criminal martyr Kath Penningill. Allen who solicited was Andrew Fraser, avoided jail by giving info on the corrupt Victorian police at that time. He died of heart disease in 1987 in prison custody awaiting trial for murder. Alan, nicknamed Mr. Death or Mr. D, was believed to have been involved in up to 13 underworld murders, including the dismembering of Hell's Angels biker Anton Kenny with a change from 1985, which I talked about before. One victim who survived was guitarist Chris Stockley of the Dingoes, whom Alan shot in the stomach while attempting to gatecrash a party. Alan received a 10-year sentence in prison for rape during the 1970s. It's also reported that he was a major drug dealer in the Richmond and South Yarra areas of Melbourne during the 1980s. New South Wales Police Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson, very, very infamous character, 
character, was convicted of supplying heroin in a deal with Allen, but was acquitted following appeal. Allen avoided capture and prosecution for his crimes by having vital information against several corrupt members of the Victorian police. Allen died on the 13th of April 1987 of heart failure at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. Pieces of his heart actually broke off after decades of heavy drug abuse. His funeral was conducted by Father Peter Norden, a Jewish priest who performed funerals for three members of the Penningill family during the 1980s. We then have Peter Allen. Peter Allen is the second eldest son of Kath Penningill. He has spent 28 years in prison. He's a violent armed robber and has a long list of assault charges. He ran a heroin empire which allowed him to purchase a mansion in Lower Temple Stowe. This was later taken from him due to the proceeds of Crime Act. He continued to deal heroin in jail. He was very skilled in court and as the jailhouse lawyer of the family, he was released from prison in 2002 after serving time for an armed robbery conviction. We then have Vicky Brooks. She was the firstborn daughter and third child of Kath Penningill, born in 1954. She later turned against the family and gave evidence for the prosecution at the Wall Street trial. She then went into witness protection. We also have Jason Ryan, again, who I spoke about before, who's Victor Pierce's nephew and son of Vicky Brooks, star prosecution witness who turned against the family and gave evidence over Wall Street. Ryan has also battled drug addiction for years. We then have Victor Pierce. Victor George Pierce was the sixth child of Kath Penningill. Together with his de facto partner, Wendy Pierce, he fathered four children. He was convicted for drug trafficking and served a six-year prison sentence during the 1990s. He once worked as a bodyguard for murdered businessman Frank Bivenuto. Victor Pierce was murdered in Bay Street, Port Melbourne, whilst parked outside a supermarket on the 1st of May 2002. It would later be alleged in court by barrister and Queen's counsel Robert Richter that now-deceased contract killer Andrew Veneman had murdered Pierce. Veneman himself was shot and killed during an argument in 2004 with McGatto in a Carlton restaurant. We then have Wendy Pierce. Wendy Pierce was the de facto partner of Victor Pierce. The couple never married but produced four children from their long-term relationship. She entered witness protection for 18 months, estimated to have cost approximately $2 million. However, at trial, she refused to give evidence against the accused and all men were later acquitted. In October of 2005, Wendy Pierce gave a media interview detailing how her husband planned and carried out the Wall Street police shootings, for which she was later charged and acquitted. In September of 2008, Wendy Pierce was jailed for six months after pleading guilty to threatening and stalking former lovers of her ex-partner Victor, who was murdered in 2002 during Melbourne's underworld war. The threats included using Facebook to make death threats. We also have Katie Pierce. Uh, this is a rather interesting one because on the 15th of December 2009, Wendy and Victor Pierce's 24-year-old daughter, Katie Pierce, was found dead at her home in Greensboro. At the time of her death, she and her mother were on bail for an incident at the Clare Castle Hotel in Port Melbourne on the 28th of March 2009 when Mark Losh, a regular patron at the hospital, was attacked with a meat cleaver and left seriously injured with a deep and long gash across his face. Three fractures to his jaw, broken teeth and facial nerve damage. Police allege that Wendy and Katie Pierce and a third woman agreed to pay Tong Yang 200 Australian dollars to assault Robert Sales, the father of a woman who was dating Katie Pierce's ex-boyfriend. Sales had been sitting one table away from where the assault occurred but was outside having a cigarette at the time of the assault. And in a case of mistaken identity, Mark Losh was a hacked across the face with a meat cleaver, which is really disturbing. Senior County Court Judge Jeff Kittle said at the plea hearing the incident was, and I quote, the worst example of intentionally causing serious injury he has seen, end quote. Tong Yang pleaded guilty to charges of intentionally causing serious injury, but Katie and Wendy Pierce both pleaded not guilty to charges that included attempted murder and intentionally causing serious injury. Katie was bailed pending a committal hearing which had only partially been heard at the time of her death. Wendy Pierce's lawyer said she had spoken to her on the phone on the 15th of December 2009 to inform her of her daughter's death and would apply to the prison for permission allowing her to attend the funeral. We also have Lex Pierce. Lex Pierce, born in 1960, is the seventh child and fifth son of Kath Penningill and has a minor criminal record. There's Jamie Penningill, ninth child of Kath Penningill. He 
he was born in 1963, died of a heroin overdose in 1985, aged to 21 years old. He was alleged to have been involved in, in an armed robbery in Clifton Hill. We also come to the final member, which is Trevor Penningill. Trevor Penningill is the 10th and last child of Kath Penningill, born in 1965. He has a history involving drugs and burglaries. He has multiple convictions for firearms and drug-related offences, and has served several jail terms. He has been described as a career criminal. Penningill was charged and acquitted over the Wall Street murders, and Trevor's son, Jamie Penningill, had two criminal convictions, including one for assault. Members of the gangs responsible for the robberies were believed to be Victor Pierce, Graham Jensen, Jed Horton, and Peter David McAvoy. So now I'm going to give you kind of a, a timeline of events of how this whole thing played out. So on the 25th of January, 1987, Mark Milantino is shot and killed by Victoria Police. Then on June 1987, Frank Velastro is shot and killed by Victoria Police. 11th of October of 1988, Graham Jensen is killed. 12th of October of 1988, at approximately 4.50am, Wall Street killings occurred. Then on the 21st of October, 1988, the Thai Task Force was set up. On the 24th of October, 1988, Jason Ryan moved to Mansfield and placed under witness protection. On the 17th of November, 1988, Jed Horton is shot and killed by police in a Bendigo caravan park. On the 9th of April, 1989, Gary Abdallah is shot and killed by Victoria Police after pulling an imitation pistol on detectives. On the 26th of March, 1991, four men stood accused were found not guilty. On the 1st of May, 2002, Victor Pierce was shot and killed in Bay Street, Port Melbourne in a drive-by shooting linked to Andrew Benji Veneman. In October of 2005, widower Victor Pierce, Wendy Pierce, gives an interview to John Sylvester detailing her, de- her husband's involvement in the crime. In February 2010, Peter McAvoy told New South Wales Police in anger that he had heard the final words of a dying constable prompting calls for a coronial inquest into the deaths of the two policemen. On the 13th of March 2011, Sunday night airs former police officer Malcolm Rosens claims that Graham Jensen was killed in cold blood and had a sawn-off rifle planted in his car after death. In October of 2011, the book A Pack of Bloody Animals was published concluding that two of the defendants, Anthony Farrell and Trevor Penningill, played no part in the murders of the two policemen. Now we move to the, the trial, the Wall Street police shooting trial, which became extremely controversial and infamous. So the trial of the four men accused, that being Victor Pierce, Trevor Penningill, Anthony Lee Farrell and David, Peter David McAvoy, began in March of 1991. The prosecution alleged six people were involved in the planning of the shootings, the accused, Jason Ryan and the late Jed Horton. Jason Ryan became a prosecution witness in the trial and was offered immunity in exchange for his testimony. Police placed Ryan under the witness protection program and moved him to Mansfield on the 24th of October of 1988 for questioning. His evidence changed a number of times up to the opening of the trial. Ryan's evidence had implicated Gary Abdallah, Jed Horton, Anthony Lee Farrell, and Emmanuel Alexandris. Police were told the party of killers were Jed Horton, Peter David McAvoy, Anthony Lee Farrell, and his uncle Victor Pierce and Trevor Penningill. Victor Pierce's wife, Wendy Pierce, also became a prosecution witness and entered the witness protection program. She had previously maintained her husband was with her in a motel all night on the night of the murders. She retracted this alibi in preparation to testify against her husband, but in a pre-trial hearing, she retracted her retraction and, as a hot not hostile witness, did not appear at the trial. In a series of video interviews in 1989 that detailed a decade of crime, including several murders by her brother-in-law, Dennis Allen, Wendy Pierce examined bank security pictures and identified those in them, saying she recognized her husband, Jensen, Horton, and McAvoy by their clothes, shoes, features, they wore balaclavas or stocking masks and stance, as she dictates here. Well, Wendy was possibly the best witness the Crown had. Um, she said that her husband was involved, had confessed, was an active armed robber. That's the shotgun. She'd identified uh, another member of the, of the team that killed the police, um, Jed Horton. That person you previously identified as being uh, Jed Horton. That's Peter McAvoy. 
And she looked at surveillance photos of a bank robbery that had used the same gun that used, was used to kill the police and put her husband there and Jed Horton there. Why do you say that's Victor Pierce? I just know Victor. That is Victor. And in a bizarre twist, Wendy revealed why she was just as devastated as her husband over Graeme Jensen's death. Why did you feel so strongly? Because I had a relationship with Graeme for a period of about eight months. Mm -hmm. A sexual relationship. Victor was charged with murdering two young policemen as a result of his best mate being shot by the police. Do you think he'd have put that much effort in for his best mate if he'd have known that his wife was having an affair with him? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? She said she'd seen her husband and Jensen wearing balaclavas at home as a joke, so she knew what they were, what they looked like wearing them. She informed police that her husband told her when he was planning a robbery. She knew when he was conducting surveillance on targets, and she knew when he completed the job because he came home with money. Victor Pierce's sister Vicky Brooks also turned against him and joined the witness protection program. Now, sadly, all four men charged with the murders were acquitted in this acquitted in the Supreme Court of Victoria. Victor Pierce and Peter David McAvoy were taken back into custody on other charges. Upon receiving the verdict, D20 sent a broadcast of the verdict to every police officer in Melbourne, telling them to keep control and resist from carrying out any acts of retaliation against the defendants. However, some forms of retaliation were carried out. Wendy Pierce was charged with perjury, convicted, and sentenced to serve nine months non-parole. The prosecution believed six people were involved in the ambush, including Jason Ryan and Jed Horton, but only two were needed to complete the killing, and only two people were seen. Perhaps only two killers were there. Yet, while the shotgun's link to the Flemington crew remains the only certainty in the case, circumstantial evidence and testimony suggests that one of the killers that night was Jed Horton and most likely Victor Pierce was there too. The kicker was that during 2005, as I've already said, Wendy Pierce, widow of Victor, gave an interview to the mass media. In this interview, she stated that her late husband had planned and carried out the murders and that he was actually guilty as charged. Rapid gunfire and one of Melbourne's career criminals, Victor Pierce, is left for dead. In 2002, Victor Pierce, then a free man, was gunned down another victim of Melbourne's gangland war. Wendy Pierce served time for perjury after the Wall Street trial. Following her husband's death, she told a Melbourne newspaper Victor was responsible for the Wall Street shootings. She also named Peter McAvoy, Jed Horton and car thief Gary Abdullah. In 2007, Peter McAvoy was found guilty of making threats to kill Victorian police he was fined $300. McAvoy now lives in New South Wales. Trevor Pettingill has served time for drug trafficking since the Wall Street trial. Pettingill and Anthony Farrell are now free men in Melbourne. All three maintain their innocence of the Wall Street killings. Jason Ryan was relocated after the trial but has since left witness protection. He has battled drug addiction in the years since. His whereabouts are unknown. For the families of the victims, the court decision was a verdict they believe set the guilty free. With that, this case remains open. But with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. So Steve wouldn't have to face charges involving a tractor theft ring and the death of a deputy sheriff in Port Clinton, Ohio. 